Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 13th of January. Today, no regrets. Alistair Campbell tells the Iraq inquiry Britain should be proud of the role it played in toppling Saddam Hussein. You, you seem to be wanting me to say that Tony Blair signed up to say, look, well, regardless of the facts, regardless of WMD, we're just going to get rid of the guy. It was not like that. We hear the view from the public gallery at the Iraq inquiry. It was pretty forthright. He just, stood, he just basically said the whole dossier was, was, he stood by every word. He hadn't interfered with it. Um, it was all John Scarlett's um, document. And we'll find out why Alistair Campbell was sending text messages to our former political editor yesterday. Also today, how the assassination of an Iranian scientist may be linked to Tehran's nuclear programme. How Manchester United's precarious finances may have dire consequences for fans. You know, all these things taken together just add to the level of concern for Manchester United fans who were who were worried about this from from the start. And, and, and as more and more information comes out of the of, of the Glazer camp, I think the, the more worried we see a lot of Manchester United fans becoming. And what the contents of a child's packed lunchbox says about their family. I never got sweets. I never got chocolate bars. But you shouldn't have cho- chocolate bars and sweets in your packed. I know you shouldn't have them but it's what you want as a child and the playground is ruthless. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former communications chief, has been grilled by Sir John Chilcott and his panel at the Iraq War Inquiry. Campbell was asked by Sir Roderick Lyne why Blair told Parliament in September 2002 that the threat from Iraq was growing. The, 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 it was in the, within the dossier. It was, the, it was the story, the narrative that he was setting out within the dossier. But the dossier doesn't use the word growing. The dossier may not, but that again is, is the Prime Minister setting out what he has read from the intelligence that, he been, that he's been, has been presented to him. But I can't find this concept of growing in... Well, a step change in its preparations of a ballistic missile programme. That's growing. Campbell talked about personal letters from Blair to George Bush offering Britain's support. The Prime Minister wrote quite a lot of notes to um, the President and I would say that the tenor of them was that, as I said earlier, we share the analysis, we share the concern, we are absolutely with you in making sure that Saddam Hussein is faced up to his, his obligations and that Iraq is disarmed. If that can't be done diplomatically, and it has to be done militar- militarily, Britain will be there. And he denied sexing up the intelligence, insisting his sole involvement in the dossier was to iron out inconsistencies. I was the person who was, who was charged by the Prime Minister to advise him on all the presentational aspects to do with the, the dossier and indeed its production, which was going to be an enormous. Uh, I think on the day that we the, the, the dossier was published, the website sort of crashed and, and the interest was absolutely huge. And so John's role within that, which was clearly understood by everybody, um, and I think also in a way it, it, it hopefully was of assistance to John Scarlett and the JIC that... In a sense, we were so clearly having that relationship because to the rest of government, it was sending very, very clear the message, this is now the document that the Prime Minister is going to present to Parliament and that guy over there, John Scarlett, is the man in charge of it. Well, I went along to the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre in Westminster yesterday, where the Chilcot Inquiry has been taking place, to hear the views of members of the public who'd been watching proceedings. I think he was very on point. He knew what he was going to get asked, and he answered exactly how he wanted to be perceived. Um, I, think, I think he raised some decent points, though. Well, which points do you think he raised that uh, were worth hearing? <laughs> I 
I think he was able to defend um, Hutton's report in the way in which they were able to justify it. So in that respect, he didn't falter. Um, do I think he should have gone to I Iraq? No, I don't think Bet should have gone to Iraq, but he was very able in this particular hearing to defend their point of view. What about you, sir? Can I ask what you thought? Um, I think it's too little, too late. We weren't really expecting anything yeah. to really come of this. Yeah. Does that mean that the inquiry has been a waste of time? Well, I think it's something you have to, it has to take place after everything that's gone on. But yeah, we, I mean, we just came in to see what was happening today. We don't really expect any, um, any real, uh, anyone to be really held to account for the war. The was pretty forthright and he just stood, he just basically said the whole dossier was was he stood by every word he hadn't interfered with it um, it was all John Scarlett's um, document well he laid into the press in a big way um, I thought it was quite interesting the way he uh, turned on people who are supposed to be his friends <laughs> and do you think that the panel have been uh, effective in holding into account no no well, why not why not I don't think they're really nailing him on on specific questions and, and nailing him down and, and and trying to uh, talk him to specific things. So he's, he's getting his opinions over really rather better than they're plying him with questions, it seems to me. So did we learn anything new from Alistair Campbell's evidence? Michael White was The Guardian's political editor during the build-up to the Iraq war. This is the fourth time he's done it. Three previous inquiries, and he's pretty confident, and as uh, listeners know, pretty unrepentant. He said, uh, no, um, you know, I defend every word of the famous uh, dossier, every single word is the phrase he used, and uh, denied all knowledge of suggestions that Britain attempted to align the dossier with statements coming out of the US, because there have been suggestions, including some in The Guardian, that things were modified in order to make sure that they uh, squared with whatever George Bush or Dick Cheney was saying at the time. But there's intense you know, feeling on both sides, as we all know of this argument, and I don't think the Chilcot inquiry is ever going to get everybody to say, well, that was fair, we finally got to the bottom of it, because some people are always going to think it was completely right, and other people are always going to think there's a smoking gun there somewhere. Somewhere. Why hasn't Sir John Chilcott found it? Perhaps he will, but not yet. You got a, a name check, Mike, as well. Well, I did, yes. I, I, I started getting texts uh, late in the morning when I was minding my own business from people saying, Alistair Campbell's just mentioned you in the Iraq inquiry. Not good news by anybody's standards. But it's a, sto <laughs> it's a story worth repeating. Well, Alistair and I go back uh, a, a long time when he was a political correspondent. We once had a fight over his old boss, Captain Maxwell. We traded blows. But back to Iraq. Alistair said, uh, the, it's a good point, he said that on September the 10th, 2001... Tony Blair, Prime Minister at the time, had come to The Guardian uh, to give one of the sort of pep talks which the people do, they all come, uh, and try and talk you around, see it from my point of view. And at the end of this session, which a lot of staff attended, 40 or 50 people, right at the end of it, Blair said, oh, another thing is on my plate at the moment. I'm very worried about weapons of mass destruction and uh, rogue regimes and how they might get into the hands of terrorists. And I was sitting at the back, as I always do, thinking, what's he on about? What are you on about, Tone? Uh, and... Of course, the following day, the Twin Towers came down. Blair was very quick to understand the meaning of it. He was at the TUC in Brighton, cancelled the speech, didn't attempt to make it, came straight back to London, went on the telly and said, we're right beside you. He got it. Uh, of course, it was on his mind. And uh, all Ali Campbell said yesterday was, uh, 
Mike White reminded of me of this later on, saying that he'd been puzzled what's Blair on about, and there it was. So he wasn't trying actively to do me harm at the inquiry, not try to besmirch me, although I did send him a text saying, I've gone into hiding, Alistair. He sent me a text back saying, it'll be the making of you. And I sent him a text saying, um, that's what you said the last time when we had that fight. Uh, I haven't heard from him since, so perhaps he's gone into hiding. <laughs> Going back to what he actually said uh, at the inquiry, I mean, I mean he, as you say, he was a, ru- a robust uh, defence of, of the line, but there was a, there was some, he raised um, quite an interesting, tantalising prospect of seeing some letters between Tony Blair and George Bush, described as personal letters, in which which Alistair Campbell characterises as being, um, you know, we, we'll support you shoulder to shoulder and so on and so forth. But when you t- put that next to Campbell's claim that we were determined to go down the UN route, um, we're not we, uh, interesting to see whether that's consistent. Well, uh, you see, this is the, so much the difficulty of it, John. You see, a lot of people say when Tony Blair went to uh, Bush's Crawford Mini Ranch in Texas in April of 2002, I was on the press plane. Uh, We didn't know much about what was going on. You never do at a distance. Blair made a speech uh, in which I read from a witness the other day. He first used the uh, phrase regime change. A lot of people feel that was the point where Blair made the commitment to fight regardless. I think the allegation was made quite recently. Uh, uh, Whereas uh, what Campbell was saying, well, no, you know, we said we're side by side. We want to go be with you on this, but we do emphasize the diplomatic route and we want to go back to the UN. And people listening will remember that in September, against the advice of Cheney and Rumsfeld and those people, but in in, in accord with Colin Powell, because he was on Blair's side through all this, he was the Secretary of State at the time, that Bush did go to the UN and say we're coming back for another resolution. Blair's supporters, obviously including Campbell, and I have some sympathy for this, say we did try to cut a deal. We did try to get the UN. They all backed off. China, France and Russia were playing uh, silly buggers with us. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, we also tried before the war to say to Saddam, get on a plane with your boys. Leave, leave, leave Baghdad. It'll be all right. Uh, And uh, we failed. And I don't think this inquiry will ever resolve this to the satisfaction of all concerned, and Campbell's testimony is a more evidence of it. He said there wasn't a plot. We did try, and we did get Bush to go back to the UN. Michael White, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website today. I'm Andrew Dixon, and I'm the art editor of The Guardian Online. Today on the site, we've got Michael Billington writing about the revelations by Lady Antonia Fraser about her relationship with Pinter. Do join the debate on our theatre blog. We'll also have Sanjoy Roy examining the career of choreographer Kenneth Macmillan, um, a working-class boy who ended up ruling the roost at the Royal Ballet. And we'll also have video delving behind the scenes at the British Library, which is exhibiting the collection of the man who invented photography. That's all at guardian.co.uk forward slash culture. Manchester United's owners saddled the club with more than £700 million worth of debt. The Glazer family then milked the club for millions in fees and borrowed £10 million in the past year. This week, United announced it plans to raise £500 million through a bond issue. Our sports correspondent, Owen Gibson, has been looking at the club's finances. Well, buried within this 300-page prospectus that's been uh, circulated to prospective investors, for this £500 million bond that they're looking to refinance their 
debt with, there's, there's rather an interesting line. Obviously, it's full of caveats and potential risks, which all of these sorts of documents are. But there's a very interesting line where they carve out the uh, Manchester United's training ground in Carrington, which is sort of state-of-the-art complex that opened in 2000. And they say that this, this could potentially be transferred to the Glazers' own holding company and then presumably either sold off and leased back to the club or entered into some other financial arrangement. Basically, it's not included in the bond offer, whereas the rest of its property, including Old Trafford, is. So, you know, this sort of rings alarm bells. And we'll, we'll just, I think, you know, all these things taken together just add to the level of concern for Manchester United fans who were, who were worried about this from, from the start. And, and, and as more and more information comes out of the, of the Glazer camp, partly as because of the need for them to refinance their debts, I think the, the more worried we see a lot of Manchester United fans becoming. How did the Glazer family saddle Manchester United's phenomenally successful club with these astonishing debts? Well, it's not actually that unusual. It seems like an age ago now, doesn't it? The sort of pre-financial meltdown world. But these sort of leveraged buyouts weren't that unusual in lots of other sectors. Obviously, the difference here and, and actually at Liverpool, as it's turned out, was that they were they were dealing with football clubs, which some people, often the fans, consider to be more than just any other company. And that's what they've run into. I mean, they, 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 had, they had a plan that they thought would work in the, in the financial climate as it was to, uh, to incur these debts, to, to take them on, service them, sell the club on as a profit, and walk away with a, with, a, with a handsome profit. Of course, the uh, financial meltdown intervened um, and some of their other interests got squeezed and they're finding it um, more difficult than they, they thought they might to, to make the whole thing work. In the meantime, of course, there are those fans who always thought it was wrong from the start to saddle a club that was completely debt-free and was making an awful lot of money on its own terms with... Uh, with debt and interest that meant that the money had to come out of the club to service that debt and uh, which side of that dividing line on tends to depend where you stand on on leverage buyouts in general I think. And for the moment do we know whether any of this is affecting uh, activity on the pitch? Well this is the big question particularly of course for United fans and the uh, £80 million question if you like which hasn't still hasn't satisfactorily been answered. I mean um, the club and Sir Alex Ferguson insist that they still have money available to strengthen. I think after a sort of closer reading of the accounts, uh, looking at that offer document yesterday, my reading of it is they're probably there can be money made available to Alex, to Alex Ferguson to strengthen the team, but it's certainly not the full 80 million, um, a large portion of which has been you know, siphoned off for, into other uses. And I think they're being slightly disingenuous when they say any money that comes in can be spent on transfers because that transparently so far isn't the case. Owen Gibson. My name's John Dennis. This is Guardian Daily. Masood Ali Mohammadi, a scientist at Tehran University, was killed yesterday by a remote-controlled bomb. Our diplomatic editor, Julian Borger, told me what happened. He was a physicist at uh, Tehran University and he was blown up by a remote-controlled bomb hidden in a motor motorbike parked outside his home. Uh, and even in the circumstances of a political turmoil in Iran over the last few months, that is a pretty unusual method of, uh, of assassination. This has come as a shock. Although he's not the first nuclear scientist to disappear or, or come a cropper. Well, no, the, I mean, there is a question of to what extent was he a nuclear f- uh, scientist. We understand he was a particle physicist, but both the government and the opposition... Uh, are saying now that he did have links with the, with the nuclear program, which raises the prospect that this is part of what appears to be a, a covert war over 
uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program. Uh, there have been two disappearances uh, in recent years of people connected to that program. Uh, one, uh, a former commander of the Revolutionary Guard, Ali Reza Askari, who disappeared from Istanbul in 2007, and um, uh, another uh, nuclear scientist, Shahram uh, Amiri, who disappeared from uh, from Saudi Arabia in the last few months. Uh, the Iranian government is positive that these men have been kidnapped by the West or Israel. There are also reports that maybe they defected and that their information about Iran's nuclear program contributed, for example, to the discovery of the secret, uh, enrich um, the secret enrichment plant in Qom earlier this year. So should we give any credence to um, these claims by Iran? Yes, there does seem to be a pattern that uh, people connected with the, uh, the uh, nuclear program have gone missing, and there's also been uh, a previous death in 2007, uh, a man named uh, Adashir Hassanpour, another nuclear scientist, uh, who died in a mysterious uh, gas leak uh, at his home, again reported to be part of this, this covert war over the nuclear program. And Tehran University, which is where uh, Masoud Ali Mohammadi uh, worked, um, that was the, the scene of uh, anti-government protests quite recently. Um, and he was believed to be a supporter of the uh, opposition candidate Mir Hussein Massavi. That's right. That, that adds another wrinkle to the tale uh, because the Massavi website is saying uh, he was one of our supporters. He had secret information about the uh, nuclear program. And so we're highly suspicious about the claims of the regime that this was carried out by foreign agents. They're suggesting that it may have been the regime itself who killed him to stop him leaking information about the nuclear program or stop him defecting. That, that at least is the implication of what the uh, the opposition website um, is saying, although it doesn't go right out and say it. It says it has suspicions about who was responsible for his death. Julian Borger. Campaigners for nutritious school dinners have reacted in horror at new research which shows that 99% of children who take packed lunches to school are eating junk food. They're eating crisps and sweets which contain high levels of saturated fat, salt and sugar. But G2's Hannah Poole sympathises as she recalls the packed lunch she took to school as a 10-year-old in the 1980s. It was made up of things like rye bread and salami or pastrami and Eccles cakes and the sort of things that my dad probably thought were sort of a healthy nutritional meal and as far as I concerned, was concerned, if it wasn't white sliced bread, I was just going to get a bit of a kicking in the playground. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it sounds quite nice. I mean, if you It sounds nice now, yeah. but you're not 10 and you're not in 1984 Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what you're saying, but, I mean, coincidentally, my 10-year-old stepson has only last week begun having lunches for the very first time. And uh, and he ha he's had... Well, not rye bread. Well, I, I don't think he has had rye bread, but he's certainly had uh, healthy food. And we've been grilling him quite closely on what his school friends have been having. And they 
they've been have they they do get you know, the sort of cheesy watsits and the chocolate bars and so on, and he doesn't get any of that, you know. Um, and he, he had um, a saffron cake that was a, a recipe oh, no. in Weekend Guardian. Not homemade. No, no, yeah, no. Homemade, homemade is bad. No, it's not. No, no, no. It's delicious. You can't give children homemade food to take. You can't give them homemade bread. You can't give them homemade cakes. It's it's just it's not on. It's almost sort of a child protection issue. <laughs> but you, you draw you draw attention in your your article in G two today and to the, this sort of trade and you know the, this the the whole kind of world of how do you dispose of un, an unwanted packed lunch. I mean, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of part of growing up has to be swapping your lunches, swapping the lunches that your parents have made lovingly and over time and spent their kind of energy on, and then swapping them with your mates. Um, that's got to be that's that's a sort of growing up ritual. I think I used to swap mine um I, e- I was even known to flush some of it down the toilet i feel so ashamed <laughs> saying this now my poor dad <laughs> you can't i know i know like i said now i pay a lot of money to have those kinds of sandwiches but back then i just wanted white bread i wanted cheese that came in a wrapper you know sliced <laughs> or, or in an interesting shapes uh, cheese squares cheese triangles that kind of thing um but i used to swap it for um for the my kind of posho sandwiches for these other sandwiches that um and also sweets i never got sweets i never got chocolate bars but you shouldn't have cho- chocolate bars and sweets in your pack i know you shouldn't have them but it's what you want as a child and the playground is ruthless <laughs> and <laughs> anything that's healthy any, any way i mean to be serious though because i mean you know this report says that you know one percent of of uh, pack lunches that um, in this academic report commissioned by the government um were, was actually could be classed as healthy i mean it's pretty terrible what can be done about it. obviously it's terrible and obviously i'm not advocating a diet <laughs> of white sliced bread and processed cheese to 10 year olds across the land however um i just think that onto a bit of a hiding to nothing by saying that, that you know cool lunches have to be healthy lunches it's really tricky i mean obviously now it's good now my diet is healthy and i haven't got scurvy it's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> okay what's in your pet lunch now then we well, see now i bring in my lunches and i probably have the sort of thing that my 10 year old self would have cringed at I have, I don't know, couscous, last night's dinner, I've got stir fry with me today, all kinds of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah Poole, and in the interests of full disclosure, I should say that the apple that I took in my packed lunch this morning is still on my desk. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. My packed lunch was provided by the lovely Mrs Dennis, and my name's John Dennis. Thanks very much for listening.